Welcome to Crosswalk Radio, the Bible teaching radio ministry of Crosswalk Church in Daytona Beach, Florida. Take your Bibles and join us today in Romans chapter 1 as we progress in our verse-by-verse study of this chapter, continuing our focus on the holy, righteous wrath of God. Take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Romans chapter 1 as we continue our exposition. I'd like to read in Romans chapter 1. I'm going to begin with verse 16, and I'm going to read all the way through verse 32. And, and there, there's a reason, there's rhyme and reason. First of all, it's the beauty of hearing God's Word read publicly, but it also, as we listen, I pray that the Spirit of God will allow it to find and its place in us to resonate within our minds and, and our thoughts, and it also will help us to keep our thoughts in context of what is being said and what I will say to you this morning as I attempt with God's help and God's grace to exposit these passages. Chapter 1, verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith For faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools." And exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They were full of in, are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but give approval to those 
who practice them. Let's bow our heads. Father, thank you this morning for your infallible, inerrant, inspired word. And indeed, it is all of those. And may it today accomplish your perfect will and your good pleasure in its preaching for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. And as last week, as we celebrated the resurrection, we took a break for a week away from our exposition. But this morning, what we're going to do is resume our exposition of Paul's letters. And I am also going to be very sensitive to the time because I realize there's been a lot of activities that have taken the time this morning. And so I, I realized that going into this. I knew what it was going to be. So I prepared to actually stop at a particular point because really the crux of what I want to say to you will require some time as we wrap up this chapter. So I'm very prepared to come back to this next Sunday and address the issues in finality in regards to our exposition. But what I want to do initially is just to jog our memories because sometimes out of sight, out of mind, and I know it's been a couple of weeks since we have been here, even though I hope that you have been reading through the book of Romans, but when one reads the first 81 verses of chapters 1, 2, and 3 of Romans, you are, as you just listened to me reading just a few chapters, for a few verses in chapter 1, you are confronted with a theme that Paul intentionally develops here. He intends to do this, and he starts off without any any to do. I mean, he goes right into it. He, in the first 17 verses, he talks, he gives them a normal greeting, and there's a lot of, of depth and, and theological significance in the greeting that he's given. And then he talks to them about he's not ashamed of the gospel. He talks about how in it the, the righteousness of God is revealed to salvation. And then he jumps right in in verse 18, all the way from Romans 1:18 to Romans chapter 3, verse 20, and develops a theme. In fact, I love the way that John Murray defined that theme. He says that theme is, quote, the universality of sin and condemnation. So what Paul does in the first three, ver three chapters of Romans is establish something very significantly. Beginning in verse 18 of chapter 1 and continuing through verse 20, he clearly states his case that if sin is universal, that it affects every man. But then also you can take it in a wider spectrum, all the way from Romans 1 verse 16 all the way to, to Romans chapter 8 verse 39. There's a larger theme that's developed here. It is justification by faith. So he establishes the case of man's unrighteousness. And then after doing that, develops the case of how men can be made right with God or men might be declared righteous with God, and that comes by faith. So in order for us to understand where we need to be with God, I think it's important for us to understand where we are. And what Paul does is establishes that very clearly. In fact, the summary of Paul's theme in chapters 1, 2, and 3 is encapsulated for us in two very important verses in Romans chapter 3, verse 10, Paul writes, none is righteous, no, not one. And then down a little bit further in verse 23 of chapter 3, he continues, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So in chapter 1, verse 18 through chapter 3, verse 20, Paul's intention is to show that the salvation provided in the gospel is the need of every man without exception. There's no man without exception. 
that does not need the gospel. And the message is that God is righteous. That's what the gospel reveals to us. And it also reveals to us that we are not. And because we are not, something is necessary in order for us to be made right with God or to be in right standing with God. So the gospel is the need of every man without exception. And the power of God is operative into salvation only through the revelation of the righteousness of God, which we find in the gospel and is appropriated by faith, which is what Romans chapter 1 verse 17 tells us. Every man, regardless of whether he is a Jew, regardless of whether he is a Gentile, stands guilty before God and can do nothing by his own efforts to remedy his sorrowful plight. In fact, in verses 16 and 17, Paul tells his readers that the gospel reveals the righteousness of God. But in verse 18, he takes a major turn. He takes a major or makes a major transition here. He transitions from the righteousness of God to what he says in verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed. So verses 17 and 18 are linked And we know this by the use of the Greek preposition gar, which is our translated word for. The revealed in verse 18 corresponds to the revealed in verse 17. Verse 17 says there's a righteousness of God revealed in the gospel. And then verse 18 says the wrath of God is revealed. The subject of the revelation is what is important for us to notice here. Not that the revelation is is insignificant, not at all. But what is being revealed is of extreme significance for us to take note of. In verse 17, the subject is what? In verse 17, the subject is the righteousness of God. And in verse 18, the subject has completely changed. It is now the wrath of God. Obviously, the wrath of God stands in antithesis to the righteousness of God. Or might I really ask the question, does it? There's something worth noting here. Paul specifically states that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. The righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. And yet the wrath of God, he says, is revealed from heaven. In fact, an accurate way of thinking about this is that this wrath is is as though it is proceeding from heaven. Do we have biblical illustrations of that? Certainly we do. In fact, if you go all the way back to the very beginning in Genesis, you will see in Genesis 6 through 8, you see God's wrath being poured out on the unrighteousness of men through the flood. Then you see the wrath of God being poured out on Sodom and Gomorrah. And then you see the wrath of God poured out on Egypt through the ten plagues. And even into the book of Revelation in the end, we see eschatologically, we see the wrath of God being poured out in the bowls of wrath. And so it's proceeding from heaven from the very throne of God. Because of this fact, it can be accurately said that this wrath is dynamically and effectively operative in the world of men. In fact, this divine wrath has a clear target. And, the, and it tells us actually what this target is. What I want to do just briefly, because I had marked my notes to go back. Because this whole subject, and I don't want to get sidetracked because I've got a very limited amount of time this morning. This whole subject of the wrath of God is, as you may very well know, a highly debated topic today. 
In fact, there are many evangelical churches that have completely, for all, pra for all practical purposes, dismissed the whole concept of wrath. They just can't seem to, to balance the concept of the love of God with the wrath of God. They just simply, and so what they do is they emphasize one at the expense of the other. And so you hear very little, sadly, from many evangelical pulpits in regards to the wrath of God. You hear little at all in regards to that. But in reality, if you understand the righteousness of God and you understand the holiness of God, then you understand that wrath is, is, is a conceivable re reality. In fact, the Greek word interpreted wrath, as I've said to you before, is the Greek word orge, which is an interesting word because it has a variety of meanings, as you can tell by the use, by the sound of that word. And it refers to a settled, determined indignation. There's actually two Greek words that are more than two, but two primary Greek words that are used for wrath. One of those words is thumos, and the other one is orge. And this is the word that is used here in Romans. And, and orge is a, is a determined indignation. It actually is an outward, it is an outward emotion. It's something that is carried out. In contrast to thumos, which is an impetuous inward feeling. In fact, when thumos is used in our New Testament, it generally describes our hearts being angry at something. It doesn't necessarily appeal to righteous indignation. It appeals to an impetuous type of anger or emotion that we as human beings, sinful human beings, are subject to experience. That's not the case with God. God's wrath is not impetuous. Not at all in the sense that we think of impetuous in regards to our nature. It is that which God executes out of His holy anger or His righteous indignation. And so we really need to understand that. And this righteous indignation, this wrath of God has a target. And this target is given to us in our text this morning, all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. So here's the target of the wrath of God. All ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Now the key words in verse 18, the second part of verse 18, 18b as I call it, are ungodliness and unrighteousness. And I want you to notice these. The first word in Greek is asibia, which is an interesting word. It means a refusal, listen very carefully, a refusal to recognize, a refusal to worship, a refusal to serve the Creator. We see this word again in verse 25, asibia. And then the second Greek word for unrighteousness is the word adakia, which is a consequence of ungodliness. So you have ungodliness and unrighteousness. Unrighteousness being the consequence of ungodliness. Men are deemed by God to be unrighteous because they are ungodly. Which means that, that is they refuse to acknowledge Him. They refuse to give Him that which He is deserving to receive. That is their praise, their worship, their honor, their recognition and all those things that go along with that. 
And Paul goes on to say in verse 18, see, that in their unrighteousness, the ungodly suppress the truth, which is, a, a, I can't stay there because I was there a couple weeks ago and spent some time there. They suppress the truth. But I will say this, that Paul very likely has in mind here the idea of, as I said to you, of restraining or holding back the truth. A way of thinking of it is like this, resisting the truth. That the ungodly, in their unrighteousness, hold back or resist that which is true. Now, do more than that, as you'll see in just a moment. They suppress the truth. The truth has to do clearly with God. In fact, in verse 19, it tells us this. It says, for what can be known, listen, what can be known about God is plain to them. And why is it plain to them? It's plain to them because God has shown it to them. That is an important, a very important verse. Because Paul is speaking of a universal revelation of God's existence. We know that theologically as what we call general revelation. Most obviously unregenerate, an unregenerate person's acknowledgement of God in the, a wide, broad sense must come via general revelation. That is through the things that God has created. God has made himself known through the very things. In fact, it's amazing. You can talk to an unbeliever and they can walk out and say, it is a beautiful day that God's made. Well, they have no relationship with God in a salvific way, but they're at least by virtue of what they see, they are what? They're prepared to acknowledge that this is something he's done. And so that comes as a universal revelation of God's existence. In fact, I had to go back last night and I had to rewrite a couple of pages here because of a providential meeting I had yesterday. And I can't take a lot of time to give you. I actually had two Tremendous conversations. One was with my pest control guy, which was phenomenal. And secondly, was with another individual who was cutting grass in our neighborhood of a home that had just been foreclosed on and had been repurchased and all that kind of stuff. And I don't have no idea why I stopped my bicycle except the providence of God and just begin to speak to him. And here was this 51 year old man who had. So just amazing. I mean, just think about this. If this was you having this conversation, you just you stopped and pulled your bike up and said, hey, you're doing a great job. The yard looks wonderful. You've done a great job of fixing this place up. Thank you very much for adding to the neighborhood, by the way. And so we had this conversation. Suddenly he begins to tell me his story. Now, listen to this. He had dropped dead in a local store. And for 23 minutes, they had worked to revive him. Now, he was telling me his story. He ended up with triple bypass surgery, showed me a scar, showed me his legs, the whole nine yards. He was in and out of consciousness for several months, a few months. In fact, sadly told me that the first person he saw when he actually got, regained his consciousness was a process server telling him that his business and his home had been foreclosed on. Isn't that a wonderful way to wake up? But in our conversation, as I attempted to witness to him, 
And it was a powerful conversation until the bottom fell out and it began to rain. He made a very interesting statement. And listen to this statement. He said, I know. Now listen, in light of what we're talking about here. He says, I know there is a God. Now how does he know that? Well, he, he, he didn't leave me to wonder how he knew that. He didn't say, oh, I had this experience. I went to heaven and was there for 23 minutes. No. He said, I know there is a God. But I don't believe there is any way to know what he is like or how we might really know him personally. Well, that was a, just an open door. So as I continued my conversation with him, it became increasingly obvious to me at, at this time he was unable to see the truth and was unable to hear the truth and boy did Wednesday night's message just resound through my mind unless a man is born again he cannot see the kingdom unless a man is born again he cannot enter the kingdom it just wasn't there and as I reflect back on that now, it truly brings to light what Paul is saying in verse 19 and continues to say in verse 20 and 21. I know what you're wondering. Don't leave us hanging. What was your, did you have any success with that? God's working in that situation. But in verses 19 and continuing on through 20 and 21, he says, for although they knew, listen, although they knew God, that is that He existed. Listen to this. And this is this not fit this man I had this conversation with. They did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Because immediately He just went off in all type of philosophical and and, and, and just off the chart and just... And just and I would try to reel the situation back in and, and ask questions and have conversation with them. But it became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were dark. And that word foolish in the Greek there means unintelligent, without understanding. Have you ever had a conversation with somebody and after you've ended the conversation, you think, I want to go back to something else I want to add? And I thought about this as I rode my bike home soaking wet in the rain. I'm thinking, oh, I, I want to go back and grab him one more time and just say, listen, you're standing here today because God gave you a chance. Not many people get a second chance. Not many people are going to be dead 23 minutes or whatever the time they're resuscitating and trying to keep oxygen going to your brain. And then be standing out here having a conversation with me today. But there's a lack of understanding. My conversation with this man was so informative in light of verse 19. You see, the knowledge of God is plain to them. He even said that, I know there's a God. In fact, he even said to them this way. He says, you can't look at all this stuff and know there's not a God. There's the general revelation. That God exists, he know, but he wasn't sure that you could ever know him or that God had given us any way to know. Who, maybe there's different ways and different venues or avenues or whatever we think. But it's plain to them. And it's plain in two respects. It's plain to them in a moral sense. That man, that man even mentioned this in our conversation. And secondly, in creation. Yet what was 
he in fact doing? What was this gentleman in our conversation in fact doing? He was guilty of exactly what Paul says here. He is suppressing the truth. Resisting the truth. How could he do such a thing? Well, he did so by virtue of, un, of his unrighteousness. A sepia, a refusal to worship and serve the Creator. Creator. As I rode my bike away in the rain, as I said to you a moment ago, I said out loud, I am, and I did, I said this, I am once again persuaded in regards to the effectual calling. If God is not calling, if God has not, does not regenerate a man so that he can understand it, he'll never understand The natural man will never understand things like this. You could have talked to your blue in the face. I could have said that to I melted in the rain, which would have never happened. And he would have never understood and yet I've had conversations just like that when I've seen people suddenly, just like a very good friend of mine the other day, had a witnessing opportunity in his business. And it was only two of these guys in this whole gym working out on a Sunday afternoon late. There were only him and this other guy in the gym working out. And, and Dan makes his way to it and just begins to him and has a conversation with him. And before that conversation is over, that man is standing there with tears in his eyes, broken. Broken. Confessing that he is a sinner in need of Christ. What's the difference? What's the difference in the man I had a conversation with yesterday and a man in the gym two weeks ago with my friend Dan? It is the effectual calling and regeneration of God's Spirit. In fact, Charles Hodge wrote in his commentary on these verses in Romans, he says, quote, God therefore has never left himself without a witness. His existence and perfections have ever been so manifested that His rational creatures are bound. I love the use of that phrase there. Are bound to acknowledge and worship Him as the true and only God. A rational person. And I think in many ways there was a sense of rationality yesterday because at the very beginning of our conversation, the man acknowledged there is God. And then went downhill from there. But no man, no man will ever stand before God and have an excuse, exactly what Paul says in verse 20. You have been listening to Crosswalk Radio, and this is the Bible teaching radio ministry of Crosswalk Church, which is located in Daytona Beach, Florida. We pray that today's sermon has been a source of blessing and encouragement to your soul, and we hope that you will share what you've learned with others. We encourage you to visit our website at crosswalkdaytonabeach.org. That's crosswalkdaytonabeach.org, and we would hope that maybe you would visit us in person very soon. Thanks for tuning in today, and please join us again next time as we continue to teach touch and transform lives by faithfully proclaiming God's Word.